Thanks, Pete. Uh, welcome, folks. If you are new or visiting, my name's Tim. I'm one of the other pastors here at Wagga Evangelical Church. Um, you have joined us on an interesting... Uh, you know, it's a, big, it's a big thing that's just happening here at the minute. And it's, uh, there is some heavy, important... And it's right to acknowledge exciting, definitely emotional things to process this morning um, in that announcement from Pete and Sarah. Uh, and, and no matter where or how that sort of news is de- delivered, it's, it's got the potential to overwhelm and overshadow everything that's said from this point forward. And I want to say I completely understand that, why that is. There is a lot of emotion linked to this. By the way, oh, youth church, is that, that always your, your call to go? Sorry, I always forget you guys. I love yous. Let's forget. <laughs> um, it's, it's understandable that you uh, may be feeling a lot of emotion attached to an, an announcement like this. If you are feeling a little rocked, if you are feeling a little overwhelmed, even sad at this moment, actually, that's entirely reasonable. And I want to say actually good and healthy at one level. It is a big thing. Uh, the reality is this does signify an enormous change on the horizon in the life of our church family and one that brings with it lots of questions and uh, present uncertainties But I was very keen for Pete and Sarah to announce this at this particular point in our service today because, and I want to say unsurprisingly, the Bible and our passage today actually helps us to process news like this. And that shouldn't surprise us. Um, It's always the case that God's word reminds us of principles for life from a God's eye view, which really has to, must impact and affect the way we think and we feel and we act, um, especially in relation to difficult seasons of life. Life changes, big announcements. Now, don't hear me wrongly at that point. Uh, you will not find any uh, reference to Peter or Sarah or Wagga Evangelical Church in the Bible today. If you do come and see me, your version has been corrupted. I'll give you a new one. Um, Paul did not write 1 Thessalonians to help them deal with looming major change in church leadership. Not at all. But the, the, uh, the sense is what Paul is doing here and part of what he's saying in this particular section of the letter is exactly what we need to hear, what we need to remember and what we need to hold on as we process our own situation. That is that Paul is reminding them that the gospel he preached to them, this is what had real effect on them. It was the same gospel that continued to produce real changes among them, even after he has to flee from them, because their shared hope was in God's work through his word in their lives. As Pete said, the senior shepherd doesn't change if the senior shepherd is always Jesus. We need to hear that. We need to remember that. We need to use that as we process our news, and even now as we turn our attention to God's word. So after that long preamble, I am going to pray for us now that we would uh, have that uh, mindset. And we're going to look at this section of 1 Thessalonians 2 under three headings. It's the message, the motive, and the manner of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we pray every week, and especially again this morning, we pray that you would be with us now, that by your spirit you would calm our hearts. Um, you'd calm our heads and that you'd make us uh, receptive to your word, that we might be uh, comforted and challenged and changed by it in every necessary way for our good and for your glory. And it's through Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, you haven't given me much time, Pete, so I've got to get my skates on here. Rightio. Let's get into it. Let's drive straight to the text. The first thing I want you to realize about the gospel message is that it is effective. Okay, The gospel message itself, that idea that Jesus Christ, the crucified Messiah, uh, resurrected from the dead, ascended to heaven, and that forgiveness and salvation is now offered through him exclusively, hope of life eternal, it sounds strange when you sort of stack it together. 
It seems peculiar at best. It seems like a weak and foolish message at worst. But the fact remains that the preached gospel, that message of Christ, is true. And therefore, it is powerful to change people thoroughly. We see this in the very first verse of chapter 2. Read it there with me. As he starts this section, he says, You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without result. You see what Paul's doing here? In that first verse, he's reminding them that of the effectiveness of their time among them, it really did produce results. And what was the nature of Paul's visit to Thessalonica? What was he there for? What was he armed with? You know, was it just a sparkling personality, colorful language, and a seven-step process for self-improvement? No! He came to them exclusively for and armed only with the gospel of Jesus' lordship of all nations, which included Thessalonica. And what did it do? It blew people up. It blew people up because the gospel message, as God's spirit works through it, it is effective and it produces real results in the lives of real people. And I want to say real results at every level of people's lives, spiritual, emotional, mental, physical. It really does. The gospel message brings change and results. Now, straight away, I want to add a caveat there. When I say on a physical level, I'm not necessarily meaning miraculous healings, though I'm not discounting that God can and does work in this way in some people's life to bring physical healing, absolutely. But the physical change that the gospel brings more often comes by way of a radical shift in the way people live and a radical shift in lifestyle choices they make in a res- as a response to that complete reorientation of heart and mind and desire that is brought about by the Spirit through the message. Now, I th- I'm going to assume at this point you will hear, you'll, you'll understand something what I'm, I'm talking about here. I'm sure you've all heard of stories or testimonies of the radical change in people's lives because somehow the gospel has come to them. I pray that actually we've all experienced it here. I pray that some of you are presently experiencing that now. Those changes are real and raw. The danger is we often only think about the extreme examples. You know, it's the drug dealer or the prostitute or the practicing witch. You know, it's the, it's the professional thief or murderer that somehow is exposed to the gospel message of God's righteous, undeniable wrath against their sin. And yet at the same moment, his gracious invitation of forgiveness through trusting in Christ crucified as a substitute. We've probably all heard one of those stories before and they're wonderful, great stories worth celebrating. But what I don't want you to see and what they ought not do or take away from is the less dramatic yet equally spectacular gospel overhaul in the lives of regular people like us. Don't, don't miss that. Don't forget that. Don't not see that. In fact, let me tell you one such example about a guy. He grew up in a loving church-going family. And even though his older siblings had gradually sort of drifted away from their Christian moorings in their sort of late teens, early 20s, at least on the surface, this guy seemed like he would remain committed. I mean, he, he kept going to church through his adulthood or through his early teen years and early adult, sorry, late teen, early adult. And he still went every week. He still identified as a Christian, be it at school or at difficult workplaces. He still prayed fairly regularly, even occasionally read familiar bits from his Bible. Underneath this very Christian-looking veneer, let me tell you, he was just as godless and self-seeking as the next atheist. He ultimately lived to please himself. He was lazy and dishonest at work when it suited himself. Uh, He drank to excess on the weekends as an excuse to engage in other stupid behavior. He had no interest in developing Christian friendships. He was one of your genuine clock-in, clock-out Sunday Christians. Uh, He was a bully when it suited him. 
And he regularly gratified his lustful urges through computer pornography. For the first 27, probably 28 years of this guy's life, he wanted to claim Jesus as his saviour and yet completely ignore him as king. Do you know this? He wanted to claim the benefits of Christ with no regard to the obedience to Christ. At best, he was a failing moralist. Or more accurately, in his own retrospective assessment, he was a willfully ignorant faux Christian. An unrepentant fraudster faking faith. That was until he found himself invited to a, along to a different church by a friend and he reluctantly went along the first week. And then he went again the second week. And then out of a genuine interest and curiosity, he went along the third and the fourth week because there was something suddenly qualitatively different about this church. There was something qualitatively different about the people in this church, about the preacher in this church, and about the message being preached in this church. What happened was this guy heard the gospel. He heard the gospel for all its horror and glory. For the first time, he actually heard it. Sin finally became utterly sinful and inexcusable. God's wrath finally became real, terrifying, and personally applicable, and humanly speaking, completely unavoidable. And because of those two things in place, then grace become utterly gracious. The invitation to forgiveness full and free through, the, through Christ's payment on his behalf became the most profound, the most precious and urgent necessity in this guy's life. Now, if you're still wondering why I seem to know a lot about what's going on in this guy's heart and mind for 28 years, let me join the dots. I'm the guy. <laughs> That's a very condensed version of my story of coming to genuine faith in Christ. The place was Wagga Evangelical Church. The people were many of you sitting among here today. The preacher was a younger version of Peter Blanche. (laughs) And I don't tell this story at this point to make much of myself. I don't tell this story to make much of Weck, though I love this place. And I don't tell this story to make much of Peter Blanche, though I love that guy. I tell this story today to make much of the message that blew me up and transformed me from inside out. Because it's the same gospel message that blew up those in Thessalonica. That saw them turn from pagan worship of idols to trusting in Christ alone despite the cost. It's the same gospel message that blew up Saul of Tarsus to transform him from being a Christian killer to a Christian convert in the blink of an eye. It's the same gospel message that has seen countless millions throughout the ages from every nation transformed from enemies of God to heirs of his eternal kingdom. It's the same message, the same gospel that accounts for the miracle of your renewed heart and mind if you're sitting here today as a saved, authentic Christian, trusting Christ for salvation alone. Because the gospel message is effective, friends, and God's works, God works through it by his spirit to achieve his end, to produce real results and bring about massive transformation in people's lives. And I I want to start here today, and we need to hear and remember this, especially today, because in the wake of the message we've just heard, or the the announcement we've just heard of Pete and Sarah leaving our ministry here in the the near future, you realize there's an immediate temptation to think that our past growth or our ongoing ability as a church to function as a healthy, vibrant, growing, Christ-exalting Christian family, there's a temptation to think that that may somehow leave with them. Do you feel that tension? I mean, I I feel that. I personally feel extraordinarily indebted to Pete for so much of my Christian conversion and my ongoing maturity as a Christian man. 
I don't doubt that there are many others who feel the same way, personally indebted to both Pete and to Sarah personally, or for the fact that, you know, the way that Sarah leads our kids' ministry here at WEX since its inception. You know, that is a right and a good thing to remember and acknowledge. We ought feel a great deal of gratitude to Pete and Sarah, but not to the praise of themselves. I don't say that as a harsh, mean thing to say. And, and I think they agree with me. Because they were never doing it for the praise of people, but rather for the, it's to the praise and the glory of God who has so generously used them in their efforts here in Wagga to see so many people come to a saving faith in Jesus, not just as a saviour, but as a king. And so this first verse, I mean, I stop and I labour in this passage today on that first verse because it's a timely reminder we get here from Paul, a timely reminder for the Thessalonian Christians then, for the Christians here now, that remains pivotal in seeing lives transformed, be it Thessalonica in the first century or Wagga Wagga in the 21st century and beyond. It's the message of the gospel. It's the gospel of Christ, God over the nations, calling people to repent and put their hope in him alone for the forgiveness and salvation that is both necessary for all and found nowhere else. So as we are beginning to process our deep sadness at the prospect of the Blanches leaving our immediate midst in the near future, remember, it's been God's work through his message that has been effective in seeing work in its first 14 years, 15 years, and it will continue to be God's work by his spirit through his gospel that is effective in the future in our space we can praise god for that even as we grieve <laughs> that's good right, that's the first point i want you to hear and the second flows from it in fact folks it's precisely because god's message is so relevant necessary and powerful to change that the motivation for sharing it really matters so next thing i want you to notice from the text today the gospel motivation matters where do we see it well i think it's littered all through this chunk of scripture uh, Paul doesn't sort of explicitly say so here, but it seems that he's at least tacitly defending himself against accusations of maybe having had an impure motive or maybe a, a selfish motive while he's sharing the gospel in Thessalonica. Uh, and this is not hard to sort of imagine. Similar charges are leveled at him. Um, in his, you look at all of his journeys from Acts 16 to 20, Philippi, Athens, Ephesus, everywhere. He sort of gets this same sort of accusation. People driving him out of town because they don't like what he's saying because they think he's trying to undercut something. It, And why do they do this? Because the motive matters. Now, you know that the motive matters. You know that's true. You know it's true. You think about it. The very same action takes on a completely different meaning when you understand the motives that lay behind it. Let me give you a very lame and a very basic example. Prasanna, hit the next slide for me, please. What's what's happening here on this? No, not that one. What are you doing? There's a picture of a lady and a man. No. Let's go again. One more. Come on, you can. There we go, right here. What's happening there, folks? What's happening? This is not a trick question. Seems to be a man helping a lady across the street. Is that what you were thinking? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Steve. Someone with some conviction. Thank you, Steve. Oh, geez, Louise. Uh, good thing or bad thing? What do you reckon? Looks pretty good. Well, the motive matters, though. You realise. See, it, this is a. This is a. If he's helping her across the street because he's seen that she's frail and needs help, and he wants to honour and help her. That's a wonderfully generous thing that's happening here, isn't it? Yet at the same time, if he's doing it because he's her paid full-time carer, it's still a good thing, but it's now a right and expected necessary thing, yes? 
But if he's doing this so that he can gain her trust, because really what he wants to do is he get to the other side and push her over in the alley and steal a handbag, it's a terrible thing that's happening here. The motive matters. Yes? And the same is true when it goes to sharing the gospel. The motive matters. Paul wants the Thessalonians to remember that his motives were actually holy, pure, and good. Look at the example that Paul points to to highlight this and to see that they had right motives and why the Thessalonians were right to trust and accept the message he preached to them. Look at it there. Paul and his helpers, they were bold enough to share the gospel in Thessalonica despite personal discomfort. That's what we see in verse 2. Read it with me. Chapter 2, verse 2, it says this, We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dare to tell you his gospel in face of strong opposition. Now, just think about that for a minute. Have you ever faced strong opposition about a, a position that you hold? It's not comfortable. In fact, strong opposition will, will quickly help you decide just how nearly and dearly you hold your position, just how strong your, your, uh, uh, you, you hold this. Because fighting opposition, it just sucks. Let's be honest, it's horrible. Unless you're some sort of crazy wacko, no one enjoys that. And so why did Paul and his helpers, why did they share the gospel anyways despite strong opposition? Well, he tells us in the next verse. Look at verse 3. He says, For the appeal we made does not spring from error or from impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. Why did Paul and his mates persist in sharing the gospel in the face of strong opposition? It clearly was not comfortable. It's because their motives were pure. Because they weren't trying to trick people or win them to themselves. They weren't trying to win popularity contests or build personally profitable empires. They shared the gospel there, A, because it was true, B, because they'd been entrusted to do so by God, and C, because they were living to please an audience of one. They were living to please God alone. Now, have you ever heard of that? I remember hearing it a while back, and it sort of dawned on me again this week, that thought of, do you live life with an audience of one? Living life with a sole desire to please and honour God above all else. I mean, just, just take that line in with you this week. Just write it down. Live with an audience of one. Consciously, actively repeat that line to yourself and think about the difference it makes. See what it prompts you to do that you might not otherwise have done this week. See what it prevents you from doing that you might otherwise have done and you shouldn't this week. And I I say that because this is the attitude and the motivation that lies behind Paul's actions here. And we know that he means it because on two occasions, two other occasions, he actually calls God as his witness to verify this is his motive. That's not for the faint-hearted. Verse 5, he says, God is our witness. Verse 10, you are our witnesses, so is God. He is actually here. This is nuts to do if you don't mean it. It's a, it's a very, uh, he's really literally stressing his sincerity when he says, you know, God, the one who knows all, sees all, has perfect insight into what lies at the heart. Paul is so confident, clear in his conscience on the issue of his motives. He's willing to call that God as his witness. That's huge. <laughs> I mean, effectively to do that is to essentially call down a curse upon yourself if you're lying. It's an extraordinarily bold statement. It's one that genuinely reflects the purity of Paul's motives in his sharing of the gospel with them. He says, God is my witness. I'm not trying to trick you. I'm not trying to smooth talk you. I'm not trying to... God is my witness. Could the same be said of you? 
Friends, what motives lies behind the decisions and the actions that you make each week, especially as it relates to sharing the good news of Jesus with others? What motivates you to do that? What motivates you not to do that? I think that's where we need to think a little bit more, isn't it? That temptation at that moment, is this the time to share the gospel? I'm not sure. What motivates you to stop? Is it kingdom-mindedness? Is it desiring God's desires? Or is it that personal protection sort of mode that comes into play? I, I, I want to make an application sort of, or an implication point here about even the, the Blanche's decision to go to reach Australia. What are the motives behind that? I'll let you think through it. I want to say they're wholly right and good even though they are devastatingly sad. It can be both at the same time. The question you need to ask yourself constantly is, what are my motives in this? Because motives matter. And whether you call him or not, God is your witness. That's the second point. Third point. It's the last point, kind of. I'll smuggle in another one there, but you won't even notice. The last thing I want you to recognize from the text is that the manner in which Paul shares the gospel, it matters too. Not only do his motives pure, but further reinforced by the manner in which he does it. Look at it there in the text. I want to do this quickly, as I said, so get your pen swinging if you're taking notes. Paul highlights the manner fitting of gospel proclamation in two ways. One, he does it by positive assertion. He says, we did this. The other way he does it is by negative assertion. We didn't do that. Let's pick up the negative examples first. How does the gospel itself shape the manner in which you share it? Well, we saw it in the kids' talk. It means there ought be no space for tricks or deception. No lollipops. Hey, come on, have a lollipop. Jesus is cool. Come and take a look. No, no, there's no space for that. There's no attempt to flatter or, or empty smooth speech. There's no space and there ought be no hint of personal gain for greed's sake either. Verse 5. More than that, genuine gospel proclamation cannot be human-centered. Now, just think about this for a minute. It cannot be for the sake of pleasing people to receive praise from those people. That's a lot of peace. I want you to stop and think about this for a minute because Paul says in verse 4 and verse 6, he explicitly states that the manner they operated under was not primarily to please people. Now, just what? Don't miss this. The gospel of sins forgiven through Jesus, it's good news. It's very pleasing for those who, who, who realize it's true. But the motive and the manner for sharing that, it must always come first from a desire to please and honor God, not people. Now, are you, are you feeling the tension? Am I helping you see the tension here? What does that even mean? How does that even work? And I'm laboring this because I, th- I think we need to hear this and apply this rightly because my fear is that too many have fallen victim to people-pleasing in their attempts to share the Christian gospel. And most often it looks like and it results in what I would call a Christless Christianity in which sin is never mentioned, God's wrath never considered, the weight of, just, of judgment never felt, and therefore Christ's death as a wrath-absorbing sacrifice for sin, as a, a substitutionary payment for sinners, well, that becomes a, a redundant, uh, unnecessary, in fact, just an act of really strange barbarity for no apparent reason. It becomes a Christless Christianity. The problem being, there is no such thing as a Christless Christianity. There is no such thing as a cross-free salvation because there is no such thing as forgiveness without payment or satisfaction for sins. Now, have you reconciled that in your head yet? We talk about forgiveness full and free, and I mean it, but it didn't come without a cost. See, you and I owe the debt of sin to God, 
But in the gospel, Christ pays it. It didn't come without a cost. It's just that you get the option of passing it on the tab. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Now we've got to see that, we've got to hear that, we've got to feel that because telling people they're sinners in need of salvation, in need of a saviour that they cannot actually demand or earn or presume upon, that's not always popular. That often displeases people. In fact, I think it's why genuine Christianity is increasingly under attack in our culture because actually moving people to acknowledge the fact that they're sinners that need saving, it's, it's not very comfortable at first but you're not sharing the gospel if you leave it out therefore never let us become people pleasers rather for the glory of god and the honor due his name let us constantly hold out the whole gospel unfiltered that people might quickly come to utter despair in themselves not so that you leave them there but that they might instead quickly look to christ alone for the solution and salvation that they desperately need. Friends, we, we've, got to, we've got to feel that. You've got to hear that. You've got to understand that. No Christless Christianity here, folks. But I want to say there's another temptation, another error to avoid, because equally, this does not mean that the manner of sharing the gospel must then be in itself harsh or abrasive. I mean, I'd, I'd rather it be something. No, I don't. Instead, I want you to look at how Paul puts his manner positively now. And I'm going to do it quickly again. He says, we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her children, verse 7. He said, we loved you so much, verse 8, that we didn't just share the gospel with you, but our lives as well. More than that, he goes on to say that we worked hard not to be a burden to you in verse 9. And in verse 10, that they strive so hard to be holy, righteous and blameless among you in their conduct And why did he do this? Why did he strive so hard in this way? Because in verse 11 and 12, he says, Like a father, they were seeking to encourage and comfort and urge the Thessalonians on to likewise holy living as a right response to God's saving grace already gifted them in Christ. The message matters, folks. The motive matters. The manner matters. Now, I need to wrap this up because there's lots to process and digest already here today. But as I end, I actually do want to squeeze in one little extra half point. It's it's something that's worth reflecting on, especially today. It's that the message of the gospel, the motivation and the manner in which we share it. Did you realize the result that it actually produces among people who actually believe it? Among those whom God is changing to understand and accept it? Did you notice particularly the effect it has on the relationships between these people, between Paul and the Thessalonians? See, I don't think it's by accident that Paul uses very family-type language all throughout this section. The fact that he calls them brothers and sisters to begin with. The fact that he mentions being like children among them. Like a mother caring for them. Like like a father urging, comforting, encouraging them on. Paul uses these terms because it really is the effect of the gospel, uniting and adopting people into God's family through Jesus. This is the effect. This is the effect the gospel ought have on people. And what that means tangibly, in reality here, it means the relationships that you form in this space with other Christians and with other Christians elsewhere, they really are the the relationships you'll take into eternity. Have you reconciled that? Look around. These are the people you'll stand shoulder to shoulder with, praising God and enjoying his presence, unfettered 
for eternity. That's magnificent. Don't take that for granted, friends. Don't, don't treat that which is special like it's ho-hum or unremarkable. That's massive. What I want to say is rather like Paul, it means investing deeply in the lives of your Christian brothers and sisters. It means like Paul, mother and father and encourage and comfort and urge each other because the gospel calling we've received is to do just that, to the praise of God's glory. Yet it does come with a cost because that sort of relational depth, that sort of family orientation, it means that you will ache like Paul when you're absent from those people. It means that when people move on from our church and from our midst, it means it will be hard, emotionally difficult. And so you actually risk that sort of pain. But I want to say you do it so you do so for a good reason because it ultimately serves to reinforce force rather and strengthen the unity that we've been called to in Christ. It actually keeps resetting our heads to a kingdom focus. That is ultimately for his glory alone. Folks, we need to hear that today, don't we? We need to hear that today. We need to feel this today. We need to remember this as we process our own particular life and circumstances. And right now, we're going to pray that God would actually, by his spirit, help us to do that well. Would you pray with me?